Welcome to Life Point Church. My name is Adam Persil. I'm the teaching pastor here. We are really glad that you're here to worship Jesus with us this morning, whether it's your first time or you've been here so many times that you've lost track. We are genuinely thankful that you're here to worship Jesus with us. We're in the third week of a series that we're calling Too Good to Be True. And the big idea in this series is that Jesus keeps his promises. Because the reality is that when, when you read God's word, the Bible, there, there are some things that we see in there. And even as believers, we, we read that and we're like, man, I don't... I don't really like that. And certainly there are things that if you're not a, a follower of Jesus, you read in the scriptures and you're like, yeah, I don't like that thing. But the great news for us is there are actually things in the scriptures that everybody likes. There are these promises that God makes to us through his son, Jesus, and they're so fantastic, they almost seem too good to be true. But the great news for all of us is that Jesus keeps his promises. Unlike, you know, obviously we live in a culture where people are constantly making promises to us. And, and sometimes they break those promises for, for various reasons. And so we get used to maybe being let down when people tell us things that, that seem too good to be true. But Jesus, he keeps his promises. And, and so today we're going to be talking about this reality that, that Jesus has said that, that our lives, that they matter, that we are significant. And so do you ever have a moment where it, it's not necessarily one of your best moments in life and you have this thought, this is my life, like this moment right now, like this, like this, this is my life. I, I was thinking about this message, and so several years ago, my, our oldest son, Ethan, he wasn't, he wasn't feeling too great, and so I slept out on the couch kind of with him just to, to comfort him or whatever, and so he, he woke up, and he's like, Dad, I don't feel the best, and it's like, okay, why don't you just um, get up and get some water, and so our kitchen and our living room kind of are all, it's kind of all one space, and we've got these laminate floors, and so I'm still trying to stay to sleep. It's like two in the morning. And I hear, hear my son Ethan go, uh, and then I hear splatter, like all over our, our laminate floors. And that was one of those moments for me where I thought, this is my life. And so, so I, I got up, obviously, and got my wife out of bed to clean it up. And just kidding, I did not, I did not do that. Um, Husbands, that would be a fail. Don't do that. And so, so I, I got up, and I was, you know, I'm like cleaning up vomit off of a laminate floor at 2 in the morning again. I'm like, okay, this is this is my life, right? And so, so I'm sure, sure you've had moments like that, too. I don't know if you hear that whisper in your head, but that's, that's what I have moments of. And the other, honestly, the other time for me is when I'm in a really boring meeting, and I want to leave, but I can't. And I think, Adam, this is your life. This is your life. This moment right, right now. But when you think back to this week, we all did lots of things. We probably ate some food. We probably slept. We probably studied or went to work. We probably hung out with some friends. Maybe we changed some diapers. Maybe we cleaned up vomit off of a floor. It was someone else's, which I don't know whether which is worse, right? Like your kids or your own. Either way, you know, like, like we all did lots of things. And, and I think especially the older you get, you, you're confronted with this question, which is, does any of it matter? Like, does my life matter? Does what I do matter on a day-to-day -day basis? And the way I'm going to ask us to think about that this morning is, how do you know if you're successful? Because because I think the truth is, whether you want to or not, like you and I, we are all going to find a way to feel like we're successful. We're all going to try to find a way to feel like our our life matters. And so, so I want you to think about with me for a moment, how do you do that? Like, how do you know if you're successful? And again, I think as you get older and older, that question becomes more and more important as you're approaching retirement, as you're approaching kind of death by old age and not death by tragic accident. Like, that, that tends to weigh on us more heavily. And I think really we've got three options. And the three basic options for how, how I would know or you would know if I'm successful is the first, 
I tell me, right? Like, I don't care what anyone says. Like, I decide what makes me successful. I look kind of deep in my heart, and I determine what I think adds value to my life. And I'm just going to do those things and seek to do those things well. And so one of the possible answers is I tell me. One that's very related to that is they tell me. And so so you've got a kind of a group of friends or a group of teachers or a group of authority figures or someone maybe even in the media that you don't know personally, but there's there's some they somewhere. And you would say, you know what, if you're asking me how do I know if I am successful, at the end of the day, in my heart of hearts, I know that I'm successful when they tell me that I'm successful. So there's I tell me, they tell me, and the third option is, is he tells me. So Jesus tells me whether or not I'm successful. And I think in, in our culture, what we're born into is probably kind of a hybrid of options one and two, where, where we don't exclude ourselves, like the I, from the equation of how do I know if I'm successful, but it's kind of I choose a they, I choose a group of people whose opinion really, really matters to me. And again, it could be family, friends, media, whatever, but I've chosen a they, and I don't kind of absolve myself from voting rights in that they, but I'm really, then what I'm doing is I'm asking them or asking myself, what do they value? What character traits do they value? What achievements do they value? And how can I do those things and become the kind of person that they want me to be? And when I do those things well enough, whatever well enough is with that particular they, then I will feel successful. I will feel significant in, in my life. But one way or another, I think we are designed to feel successful, to feel like our lives Matter. And so today we're going to be looking at Matthew 25, and what we're going to see is that Jesus, as always, offers us a better way. His promises really are almost too good to be true, except he keeps his promises. And so let's take a moment and let's pray and ask the Lord to help us as we study his word together. Uh, Father in heaven, we uh, praise you and thank you that you've chosen to reveal yourself to us through your holy word and, and obviously, God, most fully through your, your son, Jesus the Christ. Father, as we study your word together this morning, please, by your spirit, help us to do it well. God, our desire is not here, not to be here simply doing religious stuff on a Sunday, but God, to to know and love and trust your son Jesus more because we were here, and God, to end up obeying him more because we love and trust him so very much. And Father, we confess to you that that is not something that we can do on our own. But God, we need your help. So, Father, please, by your spirit, give us the help that we need. Help us to be conformed into the image of Christ and to find all of our significance in him as gift. We pray all of this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So we're going to read Matthew chapter 25. It's a parable that Jesus is telling. So Matthew 25, verses 14 through 30. So this is Jesus teaching, and he says, for it. And if you look at the context, you're going to see that it is the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus' kingdom. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one, he gave five talents. And really quickly, just so we we understand what we're reading. So in our culture, a talent is like, hey, you're good at basketball. And hey, you're good at music. And so Jesus isn't doing that. He's like, hey, I'm going to make you good at art. I'm going to make you good at science. Like that's not. So a talent in their culture was a unit of money. And there's some debate about how large that unit of money was, but it's the largest unit of money that they had. And so, so in the ESV study Bible, which I was using, it said that a talent was approximately 20 years of a, of a laborer's wage. And so, so let's translate that into our culture. And so let's just say that a laborer in our culture in a year could make about $30,000. A talent is 20 of that. 
And so $600,000 approximately is what a talent is based on what the ESV notes said. And so we're talking like real money. So, so the one he gave five talents, that's $3 million. That's a good day. Like, hey, let me loan you $3 million. Thank you, master. So verse 16 and 15, to one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also, he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, $3 million. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here, I have made two talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, master, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and I hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful or lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And so we're going to make some observations that we see in the text. And the first observation that we'll make is that all of our time, talent, and treasure belongs to God. If you notice in the very first verse that we read the master who is Jesus or, or God, the master calls his servants and he entrusts his servants with his property. It's his property. We see this in other places in the scripture, Psalm 24, 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. And so that is true of everybody everywhere because we are God's creatures. He is the creator. We are the creature. He owns all of it. But especially for those of us who have called on the name of Jesus for salvation, it is especially true. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 19 through 20, the apostle Paul writes, he says, Or do you not know? That your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. And so again, another great gift that God gives to us. He, Paul continues and he says, you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. All of our time, all of our talents, and I'm using that word like we would, there's not a monetary unit, but like, like the, the gifts that God has given us, all of our time, all of our talents, all of our treasure, everything that you have ever seen, everything about you, it all belongs to God. 
And so when we begin to think about how every single thing belongs to God, there, there are some, there's some things that flow from that. And so I'm going to give you three words that I think flow from the reality when we begin to reflect on the truth that every single thing that we think we own actually does not belong to us, but rather has been entrusted to us by someone else's name is Jesus. And so the three words are desire, despair, and delight. Desire, despair, and delight. I think when you begin to think about and reflect on the truth that everything belongs to God, including your own body, the first thing that happens, at least in me, and I think also, hopefully also in you, is I have an increased desire to faithfully use God's stuff the way that he would want me to. Because I'm like, oh man, like this isn't mine. My, my wife isn't mine. My children aren't mine. This money isn't mine. This time isn't mine. This home isn't mine. This church isn't mine. This body isn't mine. Like nothing, nothing is mine. And I want to do a better job of being a good steward of all these things that God has entrusted to me. My desire to, to be a good steward, it grows. But then when you begin to think about that more, that led me at least into despair. Because I think for a lot of us, when we think about the forgiveness that we have in Christ and we think about, therefore, kind of our own sin or our own sinfulness, I think the things that we tend to think about are the bad things that we actively did. Like, oh, yeah, that one time I lied or, oh, yeah, that one time I stole or, oh, yeah, that one time I did this bad thing. or Oh, yeah, there was that season where I I had this addictive habit. And we think about the bad things that we do, and that would be enough. But then when you think about this, you realize, oh, my goodness. Not only am I going to be held accountable for the bad things that I do, but every single second of my life, I will be accountable to God for how I managed that to his glory or not. And every single careless word the word tells us, I will be judged for. Every single penny that God ever entrusted into my care, I will be judged for how I managed that. And I don't know what that does to you, but that leads me into despair because I realize, oh my God goodness, I am not very good at managing every single second of the day. I am not very good at managing every penny that has ever flowed through my wallet or bank account. And so it drives me to despair of my own righteousness and goodness, which is why the third word was delight. Because when you begin to despair of anything you could ever do, to earn God's love, to stand before a holy God, not just thinking about the bad things that you've done, but your failure to do so many good things that he gave you an opportunity to do. When you begin to think about that, it leads to despair, which takes you then eventually to delight because you realize and you're reminded in that moment, you're like, oh, wait, I'm not judged based on my faithfulness, but rather I am given grace in the, one, in the one King Jesus, the Christ. And so it reminds us of how amazing the grace is that we receive through God's son, Jesus. And so we end up delighting more in this great, amazing gift of salvation. And if you don't know the story of how we can come to be in a right relationship with, with God's son, so the word tells us in John 3 that God loved the world so very much that he sent, he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we all should have lived, but don't. 
Jesus was eventually betrayed by a close friend. He was arrested. He was tortured. He was executed on a cross. And the scriptures tell us that somehow his suffering and his shed blood, they pay the penalty for our sin. And Jesus didn't stay dead, but rather on the third day, he rose again from the grave by his resurrection, conquering death. He has ascended to the right hand of God the Father where he intercedes for us. And one day he is returning to judge the living and the dead. And he commands everybody everywhere to repent of our sin and to trust him. And when you get driven to the reality that everything belongs to God and you're really not that great of a manager of God's stuff, that despair, which we like to skip, we like to skip the despair part, leads us to delight because it reminds us of how really amazing it is that God would love us, that he would freely give us salvation forgiveness, adoption as his sons and daughters through his beloved son, Jesus the Christ, who suffered on our behalf. And so, yeah, when you, when you reflect on the truth that everything belongs to God, I think it increases our desire to steward it well, which leads for me at least to despair, because I'm honestly, I don't think I'm very good at it yet, which leads to delight. And the other thing that I'll say with, with delight is it can be so easy to treat something that God has made as our source of life, as our source of joy. The Bible has a word for that. It's called idolatry. And idols always make promises. They always say, hey, this is the path to life. This is the path to joy. And usually at first, that's true. But it's always a lie. It's like a worm on a hook. And what we end up finding instead is sorrow and pain and death. But when we remember that every single gift that we place our hands on is a gift from the giver, and our mindset, our eyes are constantly on the giver of the gift and not the gift itself. It actually opens up greater possibilities for us to truly enjoy the gifts simply as good gifts from a heavenly Father who loves us very, very much. And so I would argue that when we remember that everything belongs to God, it actually increases our delight both in the greatness of Jesus Christ and also in the things themselves because we have them in their proper, in their proper place. And so the second observation we'll make really just flows from the first one. So if it's true that everything belongs to God, then we should use God's resources for God's purposes. Like if it's true that everything belongs to God, we should use his stuff for his purposes. And on a human level, we understand this. Like if you loan me your car and I drive it around for a week and I bring it back to you trashed with a scratch on it and empty on gas, you're not going to say, oh, well, no big deal. Like you're going to be angry about that and rightfully so because it's your stuff. I should use your stuff the way that you want me to use your stuff. And the same is true with God. It's all his stuff. So we should use his stuff, his resources for his purposes. If you remember in the passage when the servants were reporting back to the master, the first two, the one who received five and the one who received two, they, they followed a basic pattern. They said, Master, here is the choice that I made. Here is the result of my choice. Master, here is the choice that I made. Here is the result of my choice. And in both cases, they said, Master, I chose to do what you wanted me to do with your resources. That was the choice that they made. Here is the result. I, I, I have five extra talents. I have two extra talents that are for you. It's your stuff. Here you go. And the master responds to them and he says, hey, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. But if you notice with the third servant, the one that Jesus calls the wicked and lazy servant, he gives him a choice and an outcome, but he also in the middle there gives him an excuse. He says, Master, my choice was to disobey what you wanted me to do with, with your income, and I buried it because, and here's the excuse, because I was afraid. And here, and if you notice in, in the parable, 
the master doesn't necessarily agree with the wicked servant's assessment of the master. He just uses it to convict him of his own laziness and wickedness. And so it's clear, I would argue, that this third servant, the wicked one, he doesn't even know the master. Because we know from the Psalms that, that God, who in the parable is the master, is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. But this wicked servant says, hey, I knew, I knew that you're a, you're a hard master and you reap where you don't sow and, and I, was, I was afraid. And so the choice that I made was kind of birthed out of my fear and the result is you don't even get interest with, with this $600,000, this one talent that you loaned to me, but here it is, it's yours. And so that, that led me to, to the question when it comes to, to us, what's your excuse? So, so when, you, when you see something that God is calling you to do and you do not want to do that thing, what's the excuse that you tend to give when you don't want to do that thing? Are, are, are you like the servant in, in the parable and you, you're, you're afraid? Like, I, I didn't want to mess up or I was scared of something else and so God, I'm not going to do this thing because I'm afraid. Or, or maybe, maybe you would say, you know, I was ignorant, like I didn't know. God, I didn't know that, that you wanted me to do that thing. And so, God, that's why I chose not to do this, this thing. If you're being really honest, sometimes it's just straight up selfishness. God, I, I didn't want to do this thing because I'm selfish. And I didn't want to do what you told me to do because there was something that I would rather do. What, what's, what's your excuse that you give to the master when, when you intentionally choose to disobey what he's told you? to do. The other question that came to mind for me with this observation from the text is, how can we get better at this? Like, how can we use God's resources for God's purposes? If it's really true that everything belongs to God, and therefore we should use God's resources for God's purposes, how, how can we get better at this? How can we use God's resources for God's purpose? And I'll give you a couple of examples, but I think the biggest thing we need to do is we need to learn to change our default question when it comes to the decisions that we make. So here's my default question. I think it's also your default question when it comes to when you're looking at a decision. The, the decision or the question that we often ask ourselves is, will this make me happy? Hey, I'm about to, I'm, I'm faced with a, with a decision, a fork in the road, so to speak. I'm looking at, I could do A or I could do B. What I tend to ask myself, and honestly, we're not usually doing this consciously. It's like just below the surface. But the question we are often asking is, will this make me happy? A different version of that same question is, what do I want? What do I want? And I, what I'm arguing to you is we need to learn to change the default question of our hearts if we want to become better stewards of the time and the talent and the treasure that God is entrusting to us. So instead of asking, will this make me happy? I would say maybe ask, will this make Jesus happy? Instead of saying, hey, will, will this choice make me happy? Rather, we ought to ask, will this make Jesus happy? Instead of asking, well, what do I want? We should ask ourselves, well, what does Jesus want? And let me give you a few examples of where I see this playing out uh, just practically. And so the first example is, is life group. And so as Sam said a few moments ago, so at our church, we believe the scriptures teach that in Christ, we are family. And as family, we take the time to know and encourage one another. So the way we structure that at LifePoint Church is through these things that we call life groups, which are all launching today. If you see someone wearing one of these shirts, they are a life group leader, and they would love for you to be in their group. I'm a life group leader. I would love for you to be in my group. And so let, let me ask you. Because when we talk to people about, hey, you've never been in a group, would you consider being in a group? I, I, sometimes there's legitimate reasons, but usually what's bubbling beneath the surface is, that doesn't sound like the kind of thing that would make me happy. 
That does not sound like the kind of thing that I want to do. Therefore, I am not going to do that thing. I think that's what I do. And I think that's probably what a lot of you do. But let me, let me ask you, does taking a week or a day out of every week to gather in a home or here or somewhere on campus to sit down and study God's word, to pray together, to get to know and encourage other believers who happen to attend your home church, does that sound like the kind of thing that Jesus wants you to do? I would say the answer is yes. I think the scriptures would say the answer is yes. But I think our default question is not what does Jesus want me to do? I think our default question is what do I want to do? And for a lot of us, for a lot of reasons, we don't want to do that thing. And I want to challenge you, let's switch our default question from what will make me happy to, well, what will make Jesus happy? I'll give you another example. It comes with our, with our money. And so let's, let's imagine a scenario where you begin to spend less on yourself, less on me and mine, and more on the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Does that sound like the kind of thing that Jesus wants you to do? And again, if you read the scriptures, the answer is yes. Now, at the same time, does it sound like the kind of thing that will make you happier? On the surface, no. If I were being entirely selfish, I would spend all of my money on me. That's what I would do. I would say, okay, me, my wife, my four kids, 100% of my income, all on me. That's what I would do if I were driving towards my own personal happiness, but Jesus calls us to something different and better. He says to be generous to the things that God cares about most, which are his kingdom and the spread of the gospel and the care of the poor, or kind of a summary of what the scriptures say is most important to God. You and I will be held accountable for every single penny that passed through our households. And again, I think when it comes to our expenditures, a lot of times we're just floating along, like maintaining the status quo. I think a lot of times we're not even thinking about it. But I think beneath the surface, our default question is, will this make me happy? As opposed to, will this, this expense, this saving, this allocation of dollars, will this make him happy? So this past fall in November, we did a series that we called Build, where we uh, talked about our church's vision for the next two years, and we challenged people to take a step in generosity, and I was so excited to see what, what ended up resulting from that, and so I want to update you. So we had 710 families across our four campuses who, who said, yes, we are going to make a commitment to be generous to the kingdom of God over the next two years, which is incredible. Of those 710 families who, who made a commitment to pursue financial generosity to the kingdom of God over the next two years, 117 of those families had never given a penny to LifePoint Church before in their lives. They took a step to grow in generosity. And again, when you think about switching those questions, what do I want versus what does Jesus want, I think it's pretty obvious to us that Jesus probably wants us to allocate more of the dollars that he's entrusting to us to his kingdom rather than to just consuming more stuff, which again is what, it's what I like to do. I'm, I'm assuming it's probably also what you like to do. Uh, another example I'll give to you. So a lot of us, we love like binging shows on Netflix, the NFL playoffs are on right now. I'm absolutely planning on letting my brain rot for about eight hours later today, like watching, watching football games. Like I'm pretty excited about that. But, but here, here's the thing. So in, in our culture, it is unthinkable to go without entertainment. Like we treat it like it's oxygen. And so I just want to challenge you when you think about 
the time, the talent, and the treasure that God entrusts to you. If you don't yet have a habit of, of spending time in prayer on a daily basis, spending time in God's word on a daily basis, maybe, maybe it's time for you to grow and to make a shift where you allocate some of those minutes. We all get 168 hours every week, every single one of us. And the great news for you and I, even with live television, like we live in a time where you can pause it. Like you can literally pause it and say, you know what? This show will be here when I get back. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna take five minutes. I'm gonna go and take 20 minutes. I'm gonna go and take some time to get on my knees before my heavenly father. I'm gonna take some time to be in God's word because God's word is maximally important. It shapes me into the image of Christ. And so I wanna challenge you, if you're not currently having a habit of being in God's word, being in prayer, and just pause the show. You know, man does not live on entertainment alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. The last example that I think is maybe the most important example for, for this particular message, because also in our culture, there's this achievement, success-oriented thing where, where you're sitting there and you're nodding along with me and you're like, yes, it all matters and I'm going to crush tomorrow. I'm going to like, I'm just going to work so hard, work so hard. I'm going to achieve and success and Jesus, yeah, like you're with me. And so I, I just want to remind you that taking a Sabbath is, is also part of what it looks like to make Jesus happy. So take a day and rest. Take a day and rejoice in Jesus Christ and remember uh, and I said this with uh, entertainment just a moment ago, man does not live on achievements alone. Because it's easy for us in our culture to think that I have to achieve and achieve and achieve and validate my existence by achieving and growing and achieving and growing. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cultivate my own heart, my own skill set. I'm going to grow and I'm going to achieve. And it's so easy to get caught in that trap. But that is not, that's not what this message is about. So take a Sabbath. Some of you, you can't. Some of you can't. So by, like in terms of a 24-hour block, but I would, I would challenge you, at least find an hour a week, two hours a week, five hours a week, where you're intentionally saying, I don't work during this time. I'll, I'll say it for me. When we moved here to plant LifePoint Church, uh, I, I, that was when I first developed the habit of having a Sabbath. And so sometime every single week on Thursday, I stop work right, at some point, and I do not work again until Saturday morning. So I've been doing that for almost seven years now. So let me tell you what happens when I take that day off. LifePoint Church keeps on going just fine. The world keeps on functioning. The sun comes up, the sun goes, goes down. I get three square meals. Actually, I never eat breakfast, so I get two square meals that day. Like, like everything still continues just fine. And God uses that to remind me that while he delights in me contributing to the furtherance of his kingdom, I am not necessary. He can rule the world just fine without me. He delights in using me, but I am not necessary. And it reminds all of us, man, we, we're designed to rest. So this is not a message telling you to go work 168 hours a week. This is a message reminding you that we can find our success in me or them or him. And I want to challenge you to find your sense of success in him, which I would say includes doing what he says when it comes to your weekly rhythms and somehow, whether it's just an hour or 24 hours, take a break. Man does not live on achievements alone. Our last observation that we'll make about the text is that our daily choices have eternal consequences. Our daily choices have eternal consequences. If you notice, when, when Jesus, the master, is responding to, to the servants, he says two things to them. He says, hey, so you've been faithful over a little. To the two, two servants who were faithful, you've been faithful over a little. And he says, one, 
I will set you over much, and two, enter into the joy of your master. But here's the challenge that I think a lot of us experience, and I think sometimes I experience this too. A lot of us, we have this mentality that all that matters when it comes to eternity is heaven or hell. And don't get me wrong, those are a really big deal. It's a really big deal whether you end up in heaven or end up in hell. Very, very important. But what I think happens is there are times where, like, you, you're a believer, you love Jesus, you know you love Jesus, and, and you're looking at a choice. Do I do the life group or not? Do I pause Netflix to read God's word or not? Do we, do we increase our financial generosity to, you know, just a little bit more, maybe it'll stretch us or not? And I think what happens, some of the time at least, maybe not consciously, but somewhere in the recesses of our soul, we think, well, I already know I'm forgiven for everything that I'm going to do. And I already have heaven kind of as a sure thing down the road. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what I do. I could go to life group or not. I could read the Bible or not. I could give generously or not. I could do anything I want. And as long as I'm in Christ, it doesn't matter. But the Bible doesn't teach that. Our daily decisions have eternal consequences beyond simply heaven and hell. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 11 through 15, the apostle Paul, he writes, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus Christ is the foundation. No one gets into heaven without trusting Jesus Christ is what there Paul is referring to. But he continues and Paul says, now if anyone builds on the foundation, and here's an analogy, with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will be revealed for the day, the day of Christ's return when he judges everything, judges the quick and the dead, and even believers will stand before him, not judge for heaven and hell, but judge for our faithfulness. The day of Christ's return will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work survives, he will receive a reward. If it is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Matthew chapter 6, where Jesus talks about this idea of rewards multiple times. Matthew 6, 19 through 20, summarizing it says, Jesus says, don't store up treasures on earth. And he says, there's a reason. The reason is there's moth, there's rust, there's thieves there that can steal or destroy that. And wherever your treasure is, there your heart will be also. But Jesus says, rather than storing up treasures on earth, store up treasures in heaven. Why, Jesus? Well, there's no moth, no rust, no thieves. And where your treasure is, there your heart's going to be also. Do you think Jesus would command us to lay up treasures in heaven, to store treasures in heaven, if it were actually impossible to store treasures in heaven? The answer is no. He, he would not have told us to do that thing if it were impossible to do that thing. Randy Alcorn is one of my favorite authors. And when he's talking about this idea of rewards when we get to heaven, uh, and he's specifically talking about money, he says, you can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. You can't take it with you. Well, it all, you know, when the game's over, it all goes back in the box. You can't take it with you, but you can send it ahead. And I think that's a fair summary of what the scriptures teach. Our 
daily choices have eternal consequences. And that reality raises all sorts of questions that I don't think the Bible answers because you're like, wait a, wait a minute, Adam. So you're saying that in heaven, like I'm there and you're there. So we're both in heaven and it's heaven. So it's great. Yes, it's great. But one of us might have like more rewards than the other of us or more responsibilities in a good way than others of us. And it feels kind of unheavenly to our like grace, grace, grace. But if you read the scriptures, the answer is, yeah. We're both going to be in heaven. If we're in Christ, we're in heaven. Forever forgiven, forever saved, forever belonging to God as citizens of the eternal kingdom. But also, there are rewards there. And those rewards, or the lack of rewards, are based on our daily decisions. Our daily decisions have eternal consequences. And so later today, or this week, and you're watching Netflix or an NBA game or whatever you're doing, and you have that, that nudge from the Spirit, like, hey, you haven't read the Word yet today. You should press pause. Just take some time. It often feels like that decision does not matter. And I want to remind you that according to God's Word, your daily decisions have eternal consequences. Not heaven or hell but rewards or lack of rewards. One of the ways I like to think about this, and I, I, I'm making this up, like I don't know if this is how it works, but I like to think of um, like my heart or your heart. And if I'm in heaven and you're in heaven, and we've spent a lifetime either growing our capacity to enjoy God's goodness or shrinking our capacity to enjoy God's goodness, I think maybe one way that's helpful for me to think about it is, you know, may, maybe in heaven it's not that I have more rewards than, than you, although scriptures say that that's the case, and I don't know how literally we should take that. But maybe it's just that part of the reward for faithfulness is that what is in heaven, we grow in our capacity to enjoy through our obedience. Because every time we obey, we become more like Jesus. And I would say every, every time we become more like Jesus, we become more fully capable of enjoying and experiencing the love of God. And every time we disobey or even just neglect through kind of accidentally not doing what he wants us to do, Jesus, as a believer in Christ, I think that capacity in us shrinks. But I do know the word says, and I, so again, that's, that's conjecture. But I do, do know the word tells us that our daily choices have eternal consequences. So in the parable, Jesus turns to the wicked servant, the master turns to the wicked servant, and he says, cast him out into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And I mentioned earlier, it's clear that that servant really didn't even know the master. But when you read the parable, and to our ears at least, it sounds, sounds pretty harsh. You're like, wow, that's, that's a really intense punishment for just like being scared of how to use the master's money. But then when you think a little bit more about it and you, Circle back to that despair I talked about earlier. You're reminded. You know, at first it seems harsh, but it's actually not. That's what I deserve. That's what you deserve. That is what every single one of us deserves. Both for the active sins that we committed on purpose and just accidentally not being very good stewards. 
it is possible for us to enter into the joy of our master only because Jesus himself was cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Because ultimately there are only two ways to seek success. You can seek it in the crucified king or anywhere else. But Jesus and Jesus alone is the only one who can fulfill all of our desires and forgive all of our failures. And he invites everybody everywhere to repent of our sin and to trust him and to spend the rest of our lives joyfully investing and using his resources for his purposes, knowing that he was cast out so that we could be brought in to the joy of the master. Let's pray together, please. Father in heaven, you have been so extremely gracious to us. Through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus, you have made a way for all who repent of sin and trust him to be brought into the joy of heaven. And Father, I ask that you would enable us by the power of the Spirit to live in such a manner that we too one day will hear, well done, good and faithful servant. We praise you for the grace that we receive through your son Jesus. Father, please help us to steward your resources to your glory in the way that you want us to and to remember that our daily choices have eternal consequences. Father, for those here who do not yet know your son Jesus, Father, please save them. Please reveal yourself to them even now by your spirit. Help them to know, God, that they matter. They matter to you. And God, please help them and give them the gift of repentance from sin and trust in Jesus. And Father, for those of us who already know your son, God, remind us of the incredible privilege we have. We've been bought with a price. Help us to use our time, our talent, our treasure for your kingdom and your glory. I pray all of this in Jesus' holy name.